Well, my next guest is Dr. Don Bresh. Um, he's had an amazing uh, life and an amazing career across a whole host of fronts that are of extreme relevance uh, today and to our listeners. Uh, I think most famously, he was Reserve Bank Governor, um, appointed in 1988, as I recall. And he changed the way Reserve Bank was done around the world um, with some with both the Labour and then national governments, by which I mean he took away the lie of money and central banking because the way the legislation was set up and the way Don Brash ran it and the successive ministers of finance ran it was there'd be this agreement between uh, the politicians, uh, the Minister of Finance and the Government Reserve Bank as to what the target was for the value of money over the coming, I guess, year or two years, I can't recall which. And uh, it was the governor's job to do that. There was no politicians in the back, uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, talking to the Reserve Bank governor and devaluing the money that you had in your pocket or in your bank account to the great destruction of the New Zealand economy, simply to political advantage. Uh, so that was absolutely groundbreaking uh, stuff and very, very tough because at the time Don Brash took over, inflation was very, very high. And that pain of coming down is something that the politicians have created themselves by kicking the can down the road, printing money, spending money they don't have, devaluing everything in your pocket. And it was a tough, tough time for New Zealanders and the politicians were very happy for all the anger to focus on Don Brash because he was the person that was, quote, uh, doing it. He also did other things uh, in terms of putting our banks onto a more stable footing um, as Reserve Bank Governor, getting just better institutions in place. He went on from that successful job as Reserve Bank Governor to stand in politics. He was the leader of the uh, National Party and then the Great Act Party. Uh, since leaving Parliament, he has not gone and sat on the rocking chair, put his feet up and watched the sunset. Nope. Don Brash has got himself uh, in the crosshairs of uh, the wokesters in New Zealand and setting up with Casey Costello, Hobson's Pledge, with the support of a wide range of New Zealanders, simply to establish in New Zealand the promise of the treaty that we would be all one, equal before the law, equal citizenship. A very, very hard ideal to live up to, but a very important one, one that New Zealand was most successful at, possibly around the world, and one now that is utterly lost by this government, by our opposition parties, leaving us bereft, racially divided, and increasingly unable to talk to each other about racial matters and of course Don Brash was at the center of a, another controversy he was one of the first high profile people to be cancelled because he was invited to Massey University to give a speech I don't know what year this was and here he is you know Reserve Bank Governor fated around the world um, leader of the National Party um, and Vice-Chancellor abandoned from the university because he, I think it was a she, had to keep the students safe. Oh, my goodness. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rodney. You're extremely generous. I called my autobiography Incredible Luck, and I called it that because I got lucky at a whole raft of different points in my life. And the first one, you mentioned the Reserve Bank. I became governor at a time when there was a, a government in power which was serious about rectifying some of the problems facing the New Zealand economy. It was the fourth Labour government. And Roger Douglas, you recall, was the Minister of Finance at that time. 
and he was dead keen to fix inflation once and for all. He asked the Treasury, before I became involved at all, to devise a system of what he called Muldoon-proofing monetary policy. And by that he meant avoid the Reserve Bank being used as a a plaything by politicians. Muldoon had been very uh, keen to remain in power in 1981, for example. Uh, He let inflation run away. The Reserve Bank was advising him to tighten monetary policy. He ignored that advice. In 82, he suddenly thought, my goodness, inflation is running away, and he imposed all kinds of controls. Labor became government in 84, and uh, Roger Douglas decided that never again would that happen. And the Reserve Bank and the Treasury together devised a structure which was beginning to come into being even before I was appointed in September 88, but crystallized after I became governor. Law was passed in late 89, which basically said the rate of inflation should not be decided by bureaucrats. It should be decided by elected government uh, ministers, but the ministers should be obliged to tell the public what the inflation target is, how fast they want the currency to be devalued effectively. They had to be t- uh, tell the public in writing and in public. After that, they formally contracted with me at the time as governor to deliver that, and uh, everybody knew what the game was, which was a very important part of it. And as you say, that two things about that. One is it meant you had to define the inflation target, and we became the first central bank in the world to have a formal inflation target. That's now copied by almost every developed country central bank and many other central banks as well. Um, but secondly, it also meant that that uh, responsibility for delivering that was was clear and unambiguous. And in our case, as I say, it was the governor, it was me personally. Uh, indeed, when the bill was being, uh, the law was being drafted, I said to the minister, this contract you envisage is between the Minister of Finance and the governor, surely, but should be between the Minister of Finance and the Reserve Bank. And his reply was, we can't fire the whole Reserve Bank. We can't even fire the whole Reserve Bank board, but we sure as hell can fire you. <laughs> I remember when I became a minister, I had a chief executive come in and I was asking him about the extent of my power because he said how many people I had working for me and and his department. And I said, oh, so they're working for me. You know, I can fire them. And he said, oh, 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 no, minister. You know, you, you can't do that. And I said, so they're not really working for me. He says, um, no. So I said, so who can I fire exactly as minister? And he sort of looked up a bit white in the face and said, well, actually, you can fire me. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have some clause that the face doesn't fit and you can literally fire the chief executive. But I mean, that's transparency in one mm-hmm. and accountability in two. That's right. Right. None of this woolly woolly, well, we have a nice target, you know, multiple and of course that that the other thing, Don, about it, just just to appreciate, was it was a single target. Because as soon as you have two objectives, oh, we'll go for fighting inflation and maintaining full employment, you actually at that point have no transparency and no accountability because no one knows the trade-off and you can always fudge it. And of course, we now introduce to companies trumpet that they have multiple objectives. And all it is, is a excuse for failure because there's no transparency about what they're trying to do and there's no accountability for the result. That's quite right. And and I think one of the most basic principles of economics is if you have two objectives, you need two policy instruments. Yes. You can't achieve two objectives with a single policy instrument, and that's what they're trying to do. And, of course, the whole thing of politics is, and this is what was so great about the Reserve Bank legislation, is there is a conflict between the interests of politics and politicians and a sound economy and prosperity for the people. And what we had with Sir Robert Muldoon was 
decades of poor economic management that culminated in his reign, if you like, where he was literally manipulating the economy on a day-to-day basis for political purposes and to help with small business, savers, homeowners, the retired. But he could do it in a way like, um, look, I've got a soft spot for Muldoon, so I, I, I don't want to disparage him. He was responding to the incentives in which he found himself, and I'm sure he meant well. But it was um, the interest of the politicians to stay in power in the short run, and what you need to do on the economy is look further ahead and also to see the impact of the policies. And that's what was so great about that Reserve Bank Act. What was the target, Don, when you were in that first legislation? But originally, uh, well, the, 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 the legislation did not establish a that's target. That's right, sorry. They said there must be a target, and the politicians must be open about what that target is, it must be in writing. And the initial target was to deliver inflation between zero and 2% measured by the CPI, Consumer Price Index, by 1992. That was the objective. So that was three years? Uh, from the time the act was passed in 89, it was about three years. That's right. Yeah. And what was inflation at that time? Uh, well, it was confused by the fact that GST was increased from 10 to 12.5% during that 89 to 2002 period. So I think from memory including GST, was down to about 7 point something. So it was coming down. It had been coming down steadily ever since the uh, the, the government gave the Reserve Bank an instruction to get inflation down without yes. specifying precisely what they meant by that. So it and was coming course, down. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, sorry, I interrupted you. There's an interesting thing here, Don. Um, I'll play host's prerogative, and I don't mean I'll try not to interrupt because people will complain, but to keep it moving, I will carry this interruption through because you're so polite. There's this interesting thing that is easy to get confused, isn't it, between what you'd call the overall price level and prices. So you can have price shocks like GST or shortage of eggs or petrol prices going up. But when an economist or a reserve banker is thinking about inflation. It's not just those individual prices, is it? Or those individual shocks. That's right. You're looking at an aggregate measure of all prices across the economy. And normally, when you think about inflation, most people say, well, exclude things like changes in indirect taxation, which is not a function of of monetary policy. It's a function directly of government deciding to increase a particular set of prices. Uh, similarly, most central banks uh, tend to overlook things like uh, dramatic shocks in international oil prices. They say, look, yes, we could offset that by crunching other prices down. So other prices are falling to offset the increase in international prices. But by and large, most central banks say the social cost of that isn't worth the benefit. And also, your concern of what you're controlling is the value of the dollar against a basket of goods. That's right. And obviously, if there's one commodity or good that has a dramatic impact um, and it goes up, it will affect how you measure it. But it's not really affecting the value of the dollar. Like it's a real signal that needs to work its way through. Whereas what you're trying to do as a reserve bank governor is provide stable value in the currency. That's right. And to have people expect prices to remain on average stable into the future. Did you love it? The job? Yeah. Uh, Most of the time. I mean, initially, uh, the idea that inflation would get below 2% was regarded as absolutely nonsense. It was considered insane. We had had all my life to that point, I knew nothing but inflation. You made every decision that you made was based on inflationary expectations. That's right. And right through the 70s and right through much of the 80s, we had inflation into double figures. And and the consequence of that, I was reflecting on the other day. When I first returned to New Zealand after nine years abroad in 1971, 
I bought a five-bedroom house on a quarter-acre section overlooking the sea in Castor Bay, Auckland, for $43,000. Oh, my goodness. And that was almost exactly three times my very substantial salary. I was chief executive of an investment bank. I was paid the very high salary of $14,000 a year. So the house was three times my very large salary. Now, the idea that a house of that size and stature and location could have bought for $43,000 only 50 years ago is a reflection on the extent to which uh, we've had inflation over that period, and particularly in the 70s and first part of the 80s. It's shocking, isn't it? And of mm -hmm. course, what we've done, we talk a lot about economics and finances, and at the time, and we'll come to that, you were regarded as a man that didn't care. You know, this is how you were painted, as a man that didn't care. But it's the social consequences of that inflation that are so horrific. And it's hard to measure. It's hard to, we know the individual stories, but it's very hard to explain because people don't relate it back to actually the policy. It's that cause and effect. And of course, what's happened uh, with inflation and government regulations, particularly on land, we don't now have a middle class. That's right. So the idea that a young man and a young woman would get married and buy a home is no longer in prospect. Yeah. Unless mum and dad have money to support them. That's right. So what we have gone from is a very egalitarian society where a working man and his wife, and I said that because back then we had a bit of a patriarchy, could own their own home, has been lost through poor economic policy. Yep. And what you said of what you did, was it 1971? 1971, yes. That was expected here in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, it was that... That my father was a truck driver. Um, my mother, when she was raising the kids, never worked. She was that dreadful thing these days called a housewife. And it was lovely. I didn't know any mother that worked in our town. Um, and none who worked for, for money. Worked for money, sorry. Or, had, yeah, had an employed job. And they owned their house like everyone else. Yep. And my father, the truck driver, and, and the boss of the trucking company, which was very large, he lived around the corner in a similar house. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It was so wonderful because, you know, we had an economic framework. And, of course, I'm starting like I'm confused now because I was saying there was economic mismanagement. There was economic mismanagement, but it, the effects of it aren't felt for years and sometimes decades. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could go, we could afford economic mismanagement for quite a long time and then it bites. And you and I knew when we had the lockdown, we had the printing of money and all the journalists are scribbling away. Oh my God, isn't it amazing? The economy's holding up. Oh, what a brilliant minister of finance and prime minister we have. You and I know that down the road, it's going to hit the fan. And now it's hit the fan. Everyone's saying, oh, I wonder what caused this. Oh, it's a war in Ukraine or something equally absurd. When it's actually economic mismanagement, but it's seeing those trends and the cause and effect in the big picture. That's right. They're quite right. Well, when you were Reserve Bank Governor, Don, I recall, I didn't know you then, but I knew of you because you were often front page news. And I remember like every interest group in New Zealand was against you, it seemed, because you were causing businesses to close, farmers to struggle. Almost every ill that, you know, afflicted New Zealand in those early years of your governorship were attributed to you personally 
And the politicians, funnily enough, were happy for you to be taking that heat because that agreement shielded them yeah. too. And mm. you yourself took yourself all over New Zealand, hotel to hotel, uh, famously washing your undies in the sink to save money. I remember that being reported because you were very parsimonious with the public purse. And again, I, you sort of halved the running cost of the Reserve Bank and bought, got rid of all the perks. Um, you went around from town to town explaining what you were doing and won people over. Well, I did that because the social cost of getting inflation down is to some degree related to people's expectations of inflation. If people expect inflation to remain high and the Reserve Bank is tightening monetary policy to reduce inflation, unemployment will go up inevitably because wage demands are pushing up real wages, companies fail, unemployment goes up. The trick is to get people to understand that inflation is coming down and therefore to moderate wage demands. And one of the most remarkable things that happened at that early stage, you remember Mike Moore briefly became prime minister before the 1990 election. And he called me in and complained about these high interest rates. And he said, you know, what can we do about getting them down? I said, well, I can't bring them down until people's expectations of inflation start declining, wage demands start reducing, etc." So he said, you mean if wage demands were more, more moderate, interest rates would come down. I said, well, that's right. So he called Ken Douglason, who was at that time head of the Federation of Labor. And he said, Ken, no one is telling me that if wage demands were more moderate, interest rates would be coming down. And Ken Douglas, to his very considerable credit, went around the country also telling unions they had to moderate their wage demands because come hell or high water, that bastard brash was going to <laughs> bring inflation down. And if inflation was coming down, uh, unemployment was going to go up if wage demands were too aggressive. So um, a lot of my function was convincing people that I was deadly serious because only by convincing people of that would people moderate their, their expectations. And to some degree, inflation is a uh, inflation expectations phenomenon. I mean, it's driven by money fundamentally, as you know. Yes. But, but once it starts, and of course, you were everyone's bastard. Oh, that's right. Absolutely. Ken Douglas could blame you. The that, Prime Minister right. could blame you. And your hands are tied. Uh, and uh, you, did you enjoy being everyone's bastard? Is this some martyrdom thing that you've got? <laughs> no, no, as a matter of fact, I uh, actually cared deeply about unemployment. Deeply about unemployment. But I did not let that show. Because yeah. I had to make people believe that inflation was coming down, come hell or high water. And that and, was the best thing for unemployment in the long that's, run. That's right. That's right. Tell me, um, so I'm a simple guy, and my understanding is, you know, the government controls what we call the money supply, which is a not a simple thing, but we can think of it as just the money supply because the government produces legal tender. Now, it's all complicated by fraction reserve bank and electronics and all the rest of it. But that's a simple idea to a man like me. And therefore, it's inflation over time is a consequence of what government does. Uh, government does and, and, uh, and the Reserve Bank does. Yes. Well, uh, I think of the Reserve Bank. Uh, as, okay, yeah, part of the government. Yeah. And then, um, but... Of course, once you have inflationary expectations, the whole system's getting swept along by the thought that prices are going to go up. And that in itself becomes its own economic self and self-fulfilling prophecy. That's right. It must be for you, Don, absolutely heartbreaking to see that tiger of inflation back. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, I mean, the Reserve Bank clearly got that wrong. 
uh, a couple of years back now. They eased much too much and were too slow in tightening. And the consequences we see around us. I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's very sad indeed because it'd be painful getting it back under control. Very, very, very painful. And of course, it'll take, by the way, how clever was Mike Moore? How much fun was Mike Moore? How intelligent was Mike Moore? And um, he came across as the sort of funny guy with some crazy ideas, but he was very, very smart. He was, and I, I enjoyed working with his brief in his brief tenure as Prime Minister. Yeah, he was yeah. a great guy. And um, it's going to take, to get it back under control, a Reserve Bank governor of the ilk of Don Brash. And we don't see that around much these days. But it's also going to require um, politicians, the likes of which had been through tough times and had seen this was what you had to do, and also, funnily enough, an opposition that could see it to support that Reserve Bank governor. I think that's right. And again, I was very lucky in having a, a government in, in uh, the Longy Douglas government, which put that framework in place. Uh, and then, as we say, uh, the, the Mike Moore's role in it. But also, on the, of course, on the opposition benches, Ruth Richardson, who was the yes. financial spokesman for National, was equally committed to it. And when that Reserve Bank Act was put through in 89, there wasn't a single dissentient vote in Parliament on that bill. Went through unanimously. To be fair, Rob Muldoon was in hospital. <laughs> I explain why there wasn't a single vote against it. But uh, uh, and, and Winston and, Peters hadn't awoken to the fact there might be votes and beating you up. <laughs> uh, and interestingly, in 1990, after that election, when Ruth became Minister of Finance, I mean, uh, the unemployment rate went up after that election to over 11%. The political pressures on the government were very substantial. Oh. And Ruth held a, held a fort, held the fort. And it was, we had never thought of New Zealand as an economic basket case. And here we were, businesses closing, unemployment queues. It was a very, very dark time for New Zealanders economically and uh, very, very tough. And um, I don't think we appreciate what was done and I don't think we appreciate, and I don't appreciate, I can't imagine it, having been a politician, having that strength of purpose in our parliament to do it again. It's hard to see anything like it happening again. I agree with that, Rodney, unfortunately. Uh, we were very, very lucky as a country in, A, the reforming government of Labour, the fourth Labour government, and then followed up by, by Ruth Richardson's uh, role in the national government. But here's a bright note, isn't it? Because you do notice that when times are tough, leaders come forth, you know, all around the world. And um, when times are easy, uh, you can have soft leadership and it doesn't matter. And that soft leadership may lead you into a very bad place. And then... Um, the strong leadership is called forth. Tell me though, Don, and I'm sorry to throw this at you, but that wasn't your very first sort of political campaign, was it? <laughs> no, no, indeed, it wasn't. Not. I, what I was your very first political campaign? Because this might well, surprise the listeners. Political campaign was, was a very odd one because I had never been a member of any political party until uh, one day I was taken to... Oh, a... no, I'm talking university days. Ah. Uh, <laughs> what particular campaign were you thinking of then? Well, I'm trying to think what it was. Was it abortion? Was it um, um, family planning? Was it something odd that you got involved in? No. Women's folk at university? Um, I was heavily involved in uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament. Yes. Uh, what other lefty court clause? Oh, and, 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 of course, also the uh, anti Springbok tour thing and all that yeah. sort of stuff was. But there yeah. was something at university. I remember you. Not that I was there because you're fifty Much years older, older than me. <laughs> um, there was something that you're involved in with Jenny and Alan. 
And oh, oh, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that one. Yeah, I, I was one of the four members of the campaign for the uh, what was the campaign for uh, the the recovery or the re resurrection of of New Zealand democracy. It was basically a campaign to extend the parliamentary term from ah. two years to four. And Alan Gibbs and his then fiance, later wife Jenny and another guy whose name I'm not sure he can't recall, the four of us constituted the entire membership of the campaign. For, yeah, And we made a lot of noise. We, we wrote letters. In those days, didn't have to tell, you, tell the name of, of the person writing a letter to the, to the newspaper. You could sign yourself Mother of Five from Tawa. <laughs> and you were Mother of Five at Tawa, were you? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I'd bring that up just because it's so easy to forget that when you're young and you're looking at the old people around you and they're 40 and over sort of thing, and you're thinking, oh, they know nothing, you know, and you forget that um, everyone that's old was young once and did funny stuff. And I just have this great image of you and Alan Gibbs and Jenny Gibbs and that, and your mum of Tawa, you know, on the political mission and you're probably, you know, 19 years old, which is just a, a, a wonderful story. Now, tell me this. Um, I'm not going to ask you about leading the National Party and the ACT Party because, you know, politics is politics and it just is a bit, to me and probably to you, a bit tedious particularly when you see these great shifts that are occurring under you and you can, I think initially you want to bury your head in the sand and say, oh no, this will go away. And then it becomes, I'm going to mix all my metaphors like a tsunami that's just washing over you. And then you feel powerless almost to stop it. And you realize this is taking the country that you love and the place you're raising your kids in to a very, very bad place. And that to me is so much more interesting and so much more important than if you like the day-to-day -day politics. And yet this big shift that's occurring, like it was with bad economic management, which we've got back, is going to take politics to resolve it but it also requires an understanding and it needs a conversation like we're having. And what I'm talking about here is you went on, God knows you could, you know, most people would be um, nodding off at the bridge club now, if they were Don Brash, but there you are started Hobson pledge with the wonderful Casey Costello, who I hope to have on. Committed to what, Don? What's Hobson Pledge about? Basically, it's a commitment that every New Zealander has equal political rights. And those political rights are being rapidly eroded. Uh, it's a huge risk to our country. It's a huge risk to our future because there are many people now who believe in a gross misinterpretation of what the Treaty of Waitangi provided. The Treaty of Waitangi was an extraordinarily enlightened document for its time. Nothing like it happened in Australia or North America, where Europeans arrived and there were, there were previous people living there. When I was in Australia doing my PhD in the 1960s, Australian Aborigines were not counted in the Australian census. I mean, they were non-people until the late 1960s. So in New Zealand, by contrast, the British authorities who landed here said every New Zealander, irrespective of birth, should have equal political rights. And that was, it was a unique thing for that, that era. Now, um, we are sadly moving away from that. People are misinterpreting the treaty, reinterpreting the treaty, saying, no, no, it didn't promise that at all. It promised there would be two equal uh, groups of citizens, one with Maori ancestry, one without Maori ancestry, and they will have different political rights. Now, it's a gross distortion of the treaty and extremely dangerous. And even if there wasn't a treaty, you'd still oppose it, right? I mean, the, the, the current trend is a disaster for any uh, peaceful, democratic future. It cannot happen if we, if we move down this track. It's very dangerous indeed. And, and uh, I worry 
for the for the uh, future of my children and grandchildren, what New Zealand will be like in, in 20 years' time. Indeed, because in all around the world, when you have distinguished people politically by race, violence erupts. Yeah. yeah. Because people feel entitled, people feel disempowered, you're creating a for want of a better word, a tribal society um, which will allow demagogues to arrive and it doesn't matter which race is on top and which race is underneath the consequences it can be the majority, it can be the minority, the results aren't good That's right. and you must have pondered this Don, because we were brought up in New Zealand. God, we sound old, but we were brought up that, you know, you weren't to judge a person by the color of their skin, but to quote Martin Luther King, the content of their character. And that was the ideal to which we held and worked hard at a personal level, at a family level with kids and at a societal level to uphold. And to do anything else was to be a racist. That is to say, I judge a person by the color of their skin. That's racist because it's a pigmentation, right? And their skin, it's like saying, I judge people with big noses or big ears or who wear glasses or who um, are bald or old, whatever. I judge people according to an irrelevant characteristic that is racist as a person and then as a society to categorize people by their skin pigmentation is so absurd and racist because you can never have equal rights if you start to characterize people by their skin pigmentation now here's the peculiar thing how disgusting is it that you supported the anti-springbok tour because you wanted everyone to be able to play rugby and represent their country irrespective of their skin pigmentation i like doing that rather than race now that i've started it mm. Because it shows you how trivial, in a sense, it is. And you were the anti-racist then. Mm. But now, for standing up for the exact same thing here in New Zealand, you are the racist. That's right. That's a wonderful trick of language. Yeah. It's a yeah. rhetorical trick, right? That's right. Very, very, very sad. It was, of course, the thing which got me uh, deplatformed at Massey University. You referred to that earlier yes. in the program. Uh, I was uh, asked. So I should just remind people because I had this come up on our feedback. I'm talking to Dr. Don Brash, our Reserve Bank Governor, and um, along with Casey Costello, the founder of Obson's Pledge. And so those that have just tuned in, because people come along and say, gosh, this guy sounds very wise. I wonder who it is. It's Don Brash. There you go, Don. You got deplatformed. Yeah. Uh, I was asked to speak about my time in the uh, National Party, as leader of the National Party in, in the Parliament, uh, by the History Society at Massey University. But the Vice Chancellor thought I might start talking about racial equality, and that was too much for her. Apparently, some of her staff, uh, they thought that would be altogether too, too incendiary. So they, she cancelled me. Yeah. So, uh, so it's a very, it is that is just extraordinary, is it not? Yeah, and, and deeply depressing that a university vice chancellor would deplatform somebody because there's a risk they might talk about racial equality, which is what I was. <laughs> <laughs> I think it Bizarre. is clown. It is it is not Orwellian. It's clown world stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But. How successful have they been? Because um, I'm going to hazard a guess, Don. Uh, I suspect you don't 
get many opinion pieces published in the New Zealand Herald. <laughs> You're quite right about that. Even about money. I sent them an article recently on inflation and they didn't publish it because they thought, I, I don't know why they thought that, didn't even reply, of course. Uh, these days I'm a non-person <laughs> for, for the, maybe just because I'm associated with Michael Bassett, uh, who, as you know, has also been deplatformed. De deplatformed. Yeah. Well, where it is a badge of honour. I've gone one further. I'm part of the river of filth. So um, I regard that as a, um, a badge of honour. So, and I suspect that when controversial legislation is going through and Hobson Pledge, which represents a great swathe of New Zealanders, I'm a member, um, puts out a press release, I suspect you're not interviewed on the news or News Talk ZB. Uh, well, News Talk ZB is a bit of an exception. Oh, good. I have been interviewed occasionally by Mike Hosking and by Rachel Smalley uh, on that, that station. But uh, apart from that, not too many stations uh, interview me. Uh, the platform does occasionally, of course. Yeah, uh, but but mainstream papers not. Isn't that incredible? Mm. Um, because so this is where I'm getting to, right? There's a strange inversion of everything. That is to say, the person that's calling for everyone to be equal before the law, regardless of their skin pigmentation is now the racist. The person that is advocating for skin pigmentation to make a difference to the rights that you have under the Resource Management Act, under our access to health or education, is the anti-racist. A person now advocating against that distinction can't be heard on a university according to at least one vice chancellor can't appear even on a subject as far away from that as possible by the New Zealand Herald because even to hear the debate is hurtful dangerous worrisome I don't know, but they make it out to be akin to physical violence. So the police don't get called uh, if you get your house burgled or they don't do much. But if you stand with a placard and start saying we should be all equal before the law or some such, you're in danger of, well, you will be accused if you attracted a crowd of inciting hate. This yeah. is the most extraordinary achievement. Yeah. It's extraordinary and it's deeply depressing, Rodney, for our future. I mean, if we continue down this track, there is no future for a harmonious New Zealand. We end up in serious racial strife. Well, the other peculiar thing about it, Don, and we're always going to maintain an upbeatness because I, a loving more than anything I've done, this radio station, and this is my only second day. And I'm loving it because after many years, I'm feeling liberated. Because for so long, when I've done a radio show or written an opinion piece, bit by bit, I didn't realize there was increasing editorial control going over it until either I gave up because I couldn't be bothered with it or I just didn't get invited back. And I'm finding myself in this radio show the opportunity to talk to the likes of you, released, like the doors opened and we can talk. And I think if we can talk, if we can build up this community, if we can build up this understanding, there's hope. Yeah, 
And I think the interesting thing is it's not any longer a left-right issue. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen on our Bassett, Brash and Hyde yes, I have. Uh, thing, uh, an article by Chris Trotter. Yes. Chris Trotter is not associated with our politics traditionally. He's been associated with the left. And he also is saying, if we build this tribal society in New Zealand, we are in serious trouble. So it's, it's quite exciting. It is exciting because Chris Trotter's also been very good on free speech. Yes, he has. And the left, traditionally, um, George Orwell was a lefty, um, have traditionally been very, very good on free speech because they could see that the elites that they were against would love to shut them down mm -hmm. and did. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is a old-time core in left-wing philosophy of ensuring free speech. And we've seen uh, totalitarian societies, of course, they shut it down. Um, and here we are um, being shut down abused. I've got another thought for you, Don. And my next guest is going to cover this, I believe, and give me some insight on this. And hitherto, if you had a political disagreement, you would debate it with facts and reason and logic. And the person you're debating and you may not come to an agreement, but understanding would be advanced and people listening might be persuaded one way or the other. What we have now is a government and indeed an opposition because Chris Luxon is to me, even more disappointing because he's shut down, debated every opportunity with his own MPs too. Is a shutting down of debate funny enough because they don't believe in it? So there's this terrible trend that says logic and reason and facts and science is an old white man's trick that sounds good but leads us to an uncomfortable place so we won't have it how amazing is that do yeah. you agree with that comment i absolutely do agree with that i had the opportunity of hearing richard dawkins when he was in new zealand a few weeks ago yes and he makes the same point if we want to advanced civilization, advanced society, we have to be willing to debate facts as they are, at, free of myths and and uh, similar, whether they are Christian myths or Maori myths or any other kind of myths. Uh, he was he was inspirational. Very much so. And of course, he's a lefty and um, atheist. And um, he would never presume to shut down debate and then you jump ahead, and we have got the situation in our schools where not so long ago you were concerned about, you know, the use of Maori and Maori words, and you're wondering, up, well, this is taking up time in the curriculum, what's being dropped out, and, you know, how's this all going to work? and marry culture, and it's all very good doing a poi dance and all the rest of it, and speaking the odd marry word, but we want our kids to succeed in the world. But now, and Richard Dawkins was great on this, that Maori worldview, that is to say, not marry 2023 worldview, but Maori pre-1840 pretend worldview that we've sort of said, this is what we think. That pagan view, that pre-Renaissance view is in science. And he pointed out, I couldn't believe this, or New Zealand scientists were pointing out and getting deplatformed for doing so, that in the science curriculum, the kids are getting taught that there's a life force. Yeah. And everything. And everything. everything. 
Mm. I mean, you can imagine being taught that in Bible studies or uh, Maori culture studies, but not science. The kids are also being taught, Don, that colonialism was bad, that white people were responsible for it, and brown people were the victims. You're sitting in a class of eight-year-olds, and the white kids are looking at the brown kids supposedly being guilty, and the brown kids are looking at the white kids thinking, you bastards. Yeah. This is reprehensible. Absolutely. Reprehensible and tragic. And tragic. Yeah. And I follow a great guy called Scott Adams a lot. And he's the author of the Dilbert cartoon. And he's recently got cancelled um, by being provocative. And he's never been happier. And he's very pleased to be cancelled because he said it gave him the platform that he wanted. And he raised for me a tremendous point, Don, that Yes, bad things happened historically. Yes, there's racism. Yes, there's been terrible, terrible things. But every person that has succeeded in the world, without exception, has looked forward, not back. Mm -hmm. Has had a positive outlook, mm -hmm. not a negative outlook. Yes, Successful people know history and have dark days. But to succeed, you've got to be looking forward and have a positive outlook. It seems to me, what are cleverer people than me who can see what's happening, call them the race hustlers, you know, the Willie Jacksons and others who just live their life hustling on race, they're creating for what they call their people, which in of itself is disgusting, the mindset that is one of failure. Yeah, that's right. Al always looking back. Yeah. Always the victim. Mm -hmm. You can't succeed because of your skin pigmentation. These people over there have stopped you. They are the ones that caused every failure that you'll ever have in terms of health or employment or money or jobs. It's mm -hmm. their fault. So the mindset that's being established in our schools is backward looking, no individual responsibility, no ability to get ahead. And that in itself is a terrible thing to inflict mm -hmm. on young people. Right. It's um, truly, truly horrific. Do you think, Don, when I used to look at politics and have my disagreements with people about what was the best thing to do, I used to think that we all had good intentions and we were all a bit mistaken and we were better trying to understand the world and get to better approaches on everything. And so you change your mind, you grow up, you get more experience and what have you. I wonder now if there is systematic bad actors like I know Willie Jackson, and I quite like him at a personal level, funnily enough. He's done me a few favors um, and helped me along the way at times when I didn't expect he needed to. And he's very jovial. But I can't believe he thinks that what he's doing is good for the next generation of Maori. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 
it's hard to believe that he might think that, isn't it? It does. Yeah. Or is he just, or, and, and it seems to me that it, maybe you just get caught up in the grandeur of it, that um, he was brought up to feel oppressed and now it's his turn to oppress others or, and he's at top of, I mean, I'd love to have that conversation. I don't think he would allow it because, you know, you just get a whole word salad of like a cognitive dissonance, but mm. it's, it's this race hustling, this race baiting, this attack on Don Brash because you disagree with him and you make it so personal, so racial, so historically inaccurate. Um, well, you feel as though you're living with Mayo's Red Guards or something, don't you? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. Um, rational I, argument has, has disappeared. Sorry? Rational argument has disappeared. I mean, to, to, to argue, as Willie Jackson does, as other people like him, that the arrival of British civilization in New Zealand was a huge disadvantage to Maori, I mean, you have to be nuts to argue that, but that's what they argue. Yes, it? and of yes. course, you know, in economics, whenever you do something like this, and you're looking at, oh, well, you actually have to have the counterfactual. You have to have the alternative. So, okay, this is what happened. We can't change history, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All we can do is change our future. Right. right. We can make our future. We can't make our past. We can't remake our past. We can rewrite it and make it a lie, um, as we do now. Um, but if Captain Cook hadn't have come, if there hadn't have been the treaty signed, you're in complete fantasy land to imagine what would have happened. I mean, I, you just can't imagine it. Or imagine that Maori were left in this Aotearoa bubble of pre-1769 society. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I know, and I think Willie Jackson knows, that um, all the bad things would have happened. Anyway, I mean, oh, I guess you could build a wall around it, right? And just leave it with that. I mean, oh my, I mean, it's just, it's so inconceivable. But then here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I won't buy into this, oh, well, Willie Jackson's not really full Mario, because that to me is just a degree of pigmentation. I'm not playing that game. You know, I, I don't care half Mary, quarter Mary, one eighth Mary. It is so absurd. And so deeply racist and so deeply offensive. And here's the thing. Willie Jackson is a very lucky man because he was born and he's alive and he's living in the 21st century with such opportunities. And um, um, as I am, yep. right? Yep. And yes, we're not all born to um, in perfect circumstances. Um, and not all of us have a mum and dad that will love us and care for us, or not all of us, and rough stuff happened to us. But when you look at your life, you think, actually, it was pretty amazing that I had these opportunities. And you look, again, that's that mindset. You're looking ahead. But this, I'm... Nothing that I am came from my great-great-great-great-grandfather, of which I probably had 24 of them, if I go back far enough, or 48 of them. One of them may have had something bad done to him. That does not affect me. One of them might have done something bad. That is not my responsibility. I'm responsible for myself, my kids, my mum and dad, Yep. End of. That's right. Maybe my grandparents. But yep. what happened to my great-great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents? And, of course, this is the absurdity, isn't it? Because we all know 
we all had people on different sides. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 have, I have relatives, our ancestors, who were German. I have yep. ancestors who were English. They fought each other through two bloody wars and killed each other, destroyed each other. That was more recent than 18 bloody 40. And so, and of course, we know Willie had ancestors on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I'm picking on Willie because he's out there as numero uno racist to me. Yep. I've done a rent, haven't I, Don? That's good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've had I'm over you. There. Well, I'm over there. Here's, here's the thing, Don. You're doing Hobson's Pledge with Casey Costello, and I always mention her because um, she's. Oh, tell us about Casey. Uh, well, she is a person with both Napui, that's Maori, and Anglo Irish ancestry. So she's like Willie Jackson of mixed ancestry. Uh, she reminded me recently that her uh, grandfather was Kelvin Davis's uh, grandfather's brother. I think that, that Kelvin Davis and Casey are related. She's related to Titify Harawera, Honi Harawera. She's related to most of the uh, Napui uh, clan. Um, but she also believes very strongly, as we do, that every citizen must have equal political rights, otherwise we've got no future at all. And it's it's unfortunate that when people talk Hobson's Pledge, they talk Don Brash. I can be characterized as an elderly, white, male, racist, I'm clearly. Dinosaur. Uh, several of those things, I'm clearly getting on in years, I'm clearly white, I'm clearly male, uh, I'm not racist, but Casey can't be categorized as any of those. She's not male, she's not, uh, uh, elderly, and she's not uh, European. She's mixed uh, Napoli and Anglo-Irish ancestry. And she believes as strongly as I do that there is no future for us at all as a country unless we treat everyone uh, with equal rights. And of course, they ignore her because she upsets the That's narrative right. the, the and narrative. the attack. That's right. And they hate her because she is to coin that terrible, terrible phrase, she's an Uncle Tom. Yeah. Because yeah. that's how terrible it's become because your politics should be determined by your pigmentation, to coin the phrase. Like, yeah. no Maori can think like this. I mean, Willie Jackson said this, right? Yeah, that's He right. said David Seymour isn't a Maori. That's right. And of course, not only David Seymour, but also Winston Peters. Yeah. Both of whom are part Napoli. They come from, I think, the same. I'm not quite sure. Is Willie Jackson Napoli? I'm not quite I sure. I don't know. No. I don't care. Anyway, they are quite clearly entitled to call themselves Maori. And we talk about discrimination against Maori. A couple of years back, you may recall, Simon Bridges and Paula Bennett were leader, yes. and leader of, Labor, of National, both Maori. Kelvin Davis was deputy leader of Labour. Maori, Winston Peters and and uh, Ron Mark were deputy leaders of, of New Zealand First. Uh, uh, the co-leader of the Greens was Maori, and the leader of the Act were Maori. And yet we pretend that Maori hadn't got a voice in New Zealand politics. And we probably had a Maori uh, Reserve Bank governor, Maori Governor General, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's right. And no one cares. That's right. Or no should one care. cares. No one even noticed it. No. That's right. That's right. We are living in a topsy-turvy world. Don, I feel as though it became, you always uh, lift me up and um, excite me. And I feel as though I went away from an interview to a conversation and talked too much. I'd love to have you back on the show. Um, you've got a huge amount to contribute in terms of experience and wisdom. And you're, up for it because you don't lack courage and um, you're not ready to play bridge and sit on a rocking chair. I'd love to have you back on. Um, thank you for coming along. Thank you very much. That was um, Don Brash and I apologize to listeners for talking too much, but I got sparked and I'll do better next time. I'll let my, my um, guest 
uh, speak more and I'll be more of a host. So I will get better at this. But what an amazing man. What an amazing life. Uh, what, a, what an amazing set of values and principles. And I always admire people that, like we had Steve Oliver on Tuesday, who stand up for their principles and values because I tend to be that person that is very principled and has high values, but I sort of, as Steve Oliver would say, hide in the toilet when the trouble's going down. But Don Brash, when he was Reserve Bank Governor, he didn't hide in the toilet. Man, he went to every little hall in New Zealand, every little hamlet, and farmers were angry. Businesses were angry, and he was a bastard, and he would turn up, and by merely turning up and talking, they admired that, and they sort of polite and had to listen. But of course, now that he's Hobson Pledge, and now that we're 30 years on, we're not allowed to hear Don Brash talk. We're not allowed to hear him respectfully put his case because we're living in a world where he is deplatformed. But here's the thing. We've got reality check radio and you're with talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you very much for listening. You're very generous, Rodney.